Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Take it away, Desi. <laughs> so I would like to take this moment to thank our lovely patrons. <laughs> They donated to us over at patreon.com slash Hollywood crime scene. And for as little as $5 a month, they got a shitload of bonus content that you can only get on Patreon. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Uh, So these are the lucky people who got access to that bonus content this month. We have Jay McCoy, Shasta, Jules, Ian, Amy, Charlotte, Olivia, Laura, Midwest MMM, Sue, Lori, Jessica, Adeline, Jennifer, Brianne, Sophia, Stephanie, Kelly, Maria, Rachel, Jennifer, Heather, Carrie, Brian, Tim, Victoria, Janine, Janine, Helen, Alexis, Amanda, Rachel. Oh, and Rachel. There's three Rachels this month? Uh, Yeah, all different Rachels. And we actually... um, Got a message from one of those Rachels that I thought was really funny. Why is it that after I listen to your podcast, I'm hungry and I'm singing the diarrhea song Yay, in my head? Yay, that's all I want. That's because our bonus content is that good, Rachel. Okay. It's getting into your head, <laughs> making you want to eat diarrhea <laughs> or sing the praises of diarrhea, more, to be more accurate. Right. So, yeah. That's a, like the highest compliment. I think so. The more people... Start singing the diet. Like that could be our anthem. I think that is our it anthem is our already. Anthem. So please send us your favorite verses. <laughs> if you have made up your own verses. If you've made up your own diarrhea rhyme, we'd love to hear it. If you, you know, go beyond sliding into first. We can do it. Right. <laughs> That's a classic, but okay. Take it away, Rachel. You have great segue. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I texted Desi last night at... 1 a.m. And I said, look, this is going to be four parts. I'm so sorry, but there's no way I can fit the rest of this fucking story into one more episode. You got to do what you got to do. And so deal with it. Yeah. This is, this is part three out of four. I promise next week will be the final chapter. It's got to be because I got to get mine in before December's over. <laughs> you need to fucking rush through it this week. <laughs> So this is part three of Movie versus Reality, Titanic, and my sources for this episode are the book On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic by J. Kent Layton, Tad Fitch, and Bill Wormstedt, and also the book Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era by Gareth Russell. Among the many luxuries aboard the Titanic, the ship was outfitted with the latest in wireless technology. Please don't ask me how this works. I won't. But this was very (laughs) high tech for the day. Yeah. In the boat deck of the ship were the 
Marconi rooms, which was made up of three small rooms, including a room that housed the equipment and another room that was the cabin for the operators. So that's where they slept and like went to the bathroom and stuff. The Marconi telegraph machines transmitted messages from other ships, as well as the numerous messages Titanic's passengers sent and received to and from loved ones. So this was used for like official ship communication, as well as like, hey, hon, I love you. I'm on the Titanic. Yeah. Wish you were here. Wish you were. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, whoops. The bar... Uh, the Marconi sets aboard the Titanic could transmit from uh, or up to 500 miles in the daytime and up to 1,500 miles at night. The two operators manning the machines were 25-year-old Jack Phillips and 22-year-old Harold Bride. The pair would rotate their shifts every six hours, though they were not strict about it, often relieving each other of their duty should one need like to take a little break right. or something. Despite the two operators' fondness for each other, the job was a pretty tough one. There was only two of them fielding all of these messages, including the important ones, and if one of them needed help during the middle of the night shift, the other would have to wake up from sleep to go assist them. When a tech problem occurred on Saturday evening, both men were awake in that room solving the problem. Then the other one had to deal with this backlog of like personal messages. Right. All throughout the day on Sunday, April 14, 1912, the Titanic received several ice warnings from other ships. The first coming in at 9.12 a.m. from the Cunard ship, Coronia. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, that ship isn't that important in the rest of the story. But that was the first ice warning. Messages from other ships were delivered from the Marconi room to the bridge where they were to be received by Captain Edward Smith. Despite the ice warnings throughout the day, the Titanic would continue barreling through the sea increasing speeds at increasing speeds. White Star Line director Bruce Ismay boasted of the ship's speed to his fellow first-class passengers. At this rate, the Titanic was scheduled to arrive in New York by Tuesday. At 1.54 p.m., the Baltic sent a message to the Titanic warning of ice fields ahead. The message read, Have moderate variable winds and clear fine weather since leaving. Greek steaming Athenae reports passing icebergs and large quantities of field ice today in latitude 41.51 north north longitude 49.52 west. Upon receiving the message, Captain Smith passed by Bruce Ismay while walking on the deck. He relayed the message to Ismay, who took the note and decided to read it over lunch. Captain Smith ordered a change of course in response to the ice warnings. He made a note to have the watchman keep like for vid- like keep uh, a vigilant watch right. for these ice for these sightings of ice. At 5.50 p.m., the ship changed course heading further south. At 6 p.m., 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller began his shift in charge of the watch until 10 p.m. He would be relieved briefly by 1st Officer William Murdoch when he went to dinner at around 7. At 7 o'clock, Captain Smith met Bruce Ismay in the first-class smoking room where he retrieved the ice warning telegram from the Baltic that he had given him earlier. 
Smith wanted to post the message in the chart room so all the officers could see it. At dinner in the a la carte restaurant that night, Lady Duff Gordon recalled being seated at a table next to Bruce Ismay, who was, quote, dining with the ship's doctor next to our table. And I remember that several men appeared to him as to how appealed to him as to how much longer we should be at sea. Various opinions were put forward. Mr. Ismay was most confident and said that undoubtedly the ship would establish a record. So Mr. Ismay's at dinner like bragging about how like this ship's going hella fast. Yeah. We're going to be in New York by Tuesday. This is the fastest fucking ship. I mean, I'm wondering do people did they want to get there faster cuz you're paying a lot of money to have this nice cruise. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. I thought about that too, but at the time, it was like a really big deal if you could have like the biggest ship and the fastest ship, right? For the people who owned it, right? Yeah, but I, yeah, maybe there were people who were like, "Hey, I'm having a nice time. Yeah, we're in the fucking all you can eat room, <laughs> whatever." Like, Don't cut my trip short. Yeah, what about I the paid a hundred thousand fucking dollars <laughs> for this room? <laughs> yeah, and some did. Meanwhile, in the Marconi room, Harold Bride received a message from the Californian. It was another warning about ice ahead. He didn't respond to this message, and so a second message from the ship was sent to the Titanic 15 minutes later, arriving at 7.37 p.m. They were like, hello, we just sent you a fucking ice warning message, and you didn't reply back. Yeah. It's like the original guy who doesn't respond to your text or something. Yeah, he left him on red. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yes. Do these ships go up? North before they go across because it's it's a shorter distance and then they go down. Is that why there's so much ice? Do you know what I mean? Like rather than just going straight across, do they go up? Oh, please don't ask me this. <laughs> I don't know why. I really don't know why. They, right. Because uh, I feel like that might be what happens because it's shorter distance up there because oh. the earth is like curved. Damn. Desi Science Corner. Seriously? <laughs> I'm just curious. Okay. Go on. <laughs> Dun, dun. Yeah, I just I just wanted to impress everyone. I just turned to, <laughs> I just turned into that lady, the algebra numbers lady, where she's looking up into the, and she's like, "What?" Yeah, and all the numbers and angles are yeah, there. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> and I'm fucking sweating bullets because yeah. I have no idea. Um, okay, so Bride got the second message from the Californian warning of ice. He wrote this message down and he did send it to the bridge for the officer to receive it, or for the captain to receive it. Officer Charles Lightoller returned from dinner to his post at 7.35 p.m. He would later testify that he never received the message that came in at 7.37 from the Californian. We know that he did, right? Well, uh, according to On a Sea of Glass, a few things could have happened. Lightoller returned from dinner later than he said, and the message was actually delivered to Officer Murdoch, who was temporarily on duty at that time. Okay. Because he relieved him to go to dinner. And he didn't tell him. Right. And like he... Yeah. It, it, that didn't happen. Or Lightoller did receive the message from Bride, but he didn't remember receiving it. Right. Um, or it was handed to Officer Pitnam, who didn't relay the message to Lightoller. Did Lightoller survive? Yes. Okay. At 9.40 p.m., Jack Phillips, the Marconi operator, received a message from the ship, the Misaba. The message read, Ice report in latitude 42 north to 41.25 longitude, 
50 point 30 west i know i'm not reading that right i know exactly where that is do, do you know where <laughs> no <laughs> okay but all of these like locations from the ice warnings where, are where they're going it's like the same place yeah yeah much uh the the message continued saw much heavy pack ice and a great number of large icebergs also field ice weather good clear. what is field ice is that when it's little flat things yes okay phillips replied that the message had been received But at this time, Phillips was busy working on a barrage of incoming and outgoing personal messages. People Mm. were really sending these messages. Just for the novelty of it? Yes. Okay. Or, I mean, I'm sure some people were like, this is, meet me here, I'm going to be, I don't know. I feel like at night you should just be focusing on the icebergs. Like not the personal messages. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, I think maybe because the Titanic was like so adamant about providing like the best customer service. Right. Maybe that's why they were like so um, hyper fixated on getting these personal messages through. It's so irritating because you know they were stupid as hell. Yeah. Especially in hindsight. You're like, why? Just focus on the ice warning. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) the ice warning from the Misaba that came in at 9.40 p.m. never made it to the bridge because of all these personal personal messages. Ugh, I'm surprised they didn't have like two separate dockets yeah. or something. And they don't mean, and they had like, I don't know how many messages were going back and forth each day, but it was probably like a thousand or something. I mean, it was probably crazy. And they only had two guys working this room. That sounds like such a hard job. Yeah. It's speculated that besides the influx of personal messages Phillips was inundated with, this particular message didn't get passed onto the bridge because the telegram didn't specify that it was coming from the Misaba's captain. It didn't have this like... Urgency? It didn't have like this special notation that made it official. Okay. Like whoever sent the message left off these initials that were supposed to be on it. And would that have made it more of a priority? Yes. Okay. At 10 p.m., Officer Lightoller's shift ended and Officer Murdoch took over. Lightoller told Murdoch that they should be approaching the ice field at around 11 o'clock. Lightoller then made his final rounds on the ship before turning in for bed. At 11.07 p.m., Jack Phillips received a message from the Californian. It read, I say, old man, we are stopped and surrounded by ice. Full steam ahead. <laughs> Now, you'll notice all the other messages that they've received are very official sounding. Right. This one's literally sounds like a text message. Yeah, it's like, hey, 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 bro. Hey, bro. There's like hella ice up So is that what you do in ice? You basically just stop? Or you change your route. Right. Um, But what if you're in the ice field? You kind of just... That's what happened in California. They stopped. They stopped. They stopped their ship amongst the ice. Uh, The message was obviously pretty informal sounding and it was not prefaced with the appropriate letters denoting it as an official message from that ship's captain. Oh. Much like the Misaba's message, it didn't have these like special initials by it. That seems annoying. Because what if the captain's not there? Yeah. Or like it's some kind of other emergency. Or like you don't get that message and be like, oh, well, there's no captain initials. Forget it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when you respond and be like, is this like official captain? Like wouldn't you clarify you, at that point? You would think. On top of that, because of the Californians' relative close proximity to the Titanic, 
their ship was about five miles away from the Titanic. The message came in extra loud over the wireless system, which really annoyed Jack Phillips. He was like, ugh, like it blared over the system. So the closer you are, the louder it is? (laughs) Apparently. That's funny. Look, I tried to look into it a little bit, but my uh, brain turned to mush. I think it's... uh it's funny that all of his little petty grievances could have caused this disaster. <laughs> yeah, Jack was really irritated at this point. And I don't blame him for being exhausted and overworked and irritated, but it is like... Right. Not I mean, this is t- the one time to maybe be like, okay, like fuck the personal messages. <laughs> Jack had been swamped with messages all night. He was currently fielding messages to the wireless station in Cape Race in Newfoundland. So Jack responded to this message from the Californian, shut up, shut up. I am busy. I am working Cape Race. What? <laughs> What's Cape Race? It's the station oh. in Newfoundland. Jesus. Get so a grip, Jack. He's fielding these personal messages to Cape Race. And- Wouldn't you easily be like, I'm done with the personal messages. I have something else to focus on. Like, it seems like a win-win. I have no idea. Jesus. I have no idea what was going on. Uh, so he responds with this very terse message, like, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. He looks stupid now. <laughs> <laughs> so the Californian's wireless operator gets this message telling him to shut the fuck up. Uh, the operator on the Californian was a man named Cyril Evans, and he was like, geez, well, fuck you, man. So he didn't yeah. respond to that. <gasps> Jack continued to field messages to Cape Race and declined to pass the latest ice warning from the Californian onto the bridge. This would be the seventh and final ice warning the Titanic received that day. Jesus. Wireless operator Cyril Evans then turned his radio off at 11.35 p.m. and went to bed aboard the Californian, which was stopped for the night. So he's like, oh, I guess I'll turn in. I tried. <laughs> That's like that's like sending someone an explosive text and turning your phone. Off. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, we'll see what happens. Yeah. At this point, the Titanic was traveling her fastest speed yet, twenty two and a half knots. In the crow's nest that night were lookouts Reginald Lee and Frederick Fleet. Both of these men were freezing their balls off. Yeah. This has to be like the coldest part of the ship. Totally. Then At 11.39 p.m., they spotted a fast-approaching iceberg right in the path of the ship. It's approaching? (laughs) Oh, they're approaching the iceberg, or do icebergs move? Well, it it appeared to be approaching them because the ship was moving. That's what I mean. But I... No. (laughs) So they're approaching the iceberg. Okay. (laughs) Well, when you say it, an approaching iceberg, it's like, shit! I was trying to use prose. (laughs) I got scared. (laughs) Captain Smith had warned earlier that icebergs may be more difficult to spot given the ocean's conditions that day, which were unusually calm. Apparently, the breaking of waves makes it more easy to spot these icebergs. I see. Fleet immediately began clanging the bell in the crow's nest three times to signal the berg to the officers down below. Fleet picked up the phone and called down to the wheelhouse. Sixth Officer Moody picked up and Fleet shouted, Iceberg, right ahead! <laughs> I thought you were going to do the line. I, I was thinking for a second. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the message was relayed to Officer Murdoch, who was standing nearby. 
Murdoch ran to the bridge shouting, hard, a starboard, a command to turn the ship left. Okay, hard. Because you're turning the wheel. Hard, turn it hard. You're turning the wheel starboard, which is right. Okay. To get the ship to go, ship to go left. Right. He ordered the engines to shut down, but the speed at which the Titanic was traveling and the iceberg's close proximity would render this useless. The only hope was for the Titanic to clear the iceberg. They were cranking that wheel hard, a starboard, hoping that they would miss the upcoming berg. From the deck, it looked as though they might barely make it without collision. But down below, the Titanic's starboard hull met with the iceberg, popping out the rivets and denting up the plates as it scraped along. Up above, large chunks of ice broke off of the berg and fell down to the deck. Quartermaster Alfred Oliver described it as a, quote, long grinding sound. Yeah. That grinding sound was the iceberg ripping open a series of six gashes in the ship's hull, allowing seawater to flood the watertight compartments. According to a study done by a team of engineers, of scientists in the 1990s, the damage done by the iceberg was only about 12 or 13 square feet. The problem was that the damage occurred across six of these watertight holds. The ship could have stayed afloat if like four of these holes were breached, but not more than that. The first class passengers who were in the upper area of the ship felt the collision the least, but many were treated to the eerie sight of a wall of white ice passing by the ship. Yeah. Like if you looked at your window at that moment, you'd just see this like huge ice wall. Yeah. That's scary. Right. George Reams was leaving the bathroom when the ship struck the iceberg. He claimed to have felt a bump before turning to see the iceberg from the windows. First class passenger Edward Kimball said, quote, I had just gone down from the smoking room to my stateroom and removed my coat and was standing in the middle of the room when the ship struck the iceberg. It seemed to me like scraping and tearing more than a shock. It was on the starboard side of the ship under our room and ice came in our porthole. <gasps> so not only that, but there was like ice falling everywhere. Yeah. Lady Duff Gordon described it as, quote, a funny rumbling noise. It was like nothing I had ever heard before. It seemed almost as if someone had been playing bowls, rolling the great balls along. What the hell? What's bowls? <laughs> Is that bowling? I don't Maybe. know. I mean, did they have bowling in 1912? Well, what's rolling the balls? <laughs> <laughs> she said playing bowls, like a salad bowl. I have no idea. Well, that's what it sounded like to her. Because bowling is spelled B-O-W-L. Yeah, so I don't know. That's some uh, primitive bowling. Maybe. Maybe it's the early version. As she, uh, she continued that it was, quote, not a tremendous crash and as if, quote, among, uh, as if someone had drawn a giant finger all along the side of the boat. Hmm. So a lot of these people, like, rather than, like, an intense, like, It jolt, was like a side swipe almost. Yeah. Like, ripping it open. Right. Like Lady Duff Gordon, many of the passengers recall next hearing the ship's engines stop. 17-year-old first-class passenger Jack Thayer said, I was on my feet at the time, and I do not think it was enough to throw anyone down. I seemed to sway slightly. I immediately realized that the ship had veered to port as though she had been gently pushed. Almost instantaneously, the engines stopped. The sudden quiet was startling and disturbing. 
The stopping of the engines had more of an effect on the second-class passengers who were toward the back of the ship when the colli- than the collision itself. Second-class passenger Sidney Collett said that he felt, quote, two heavy throbs just as if we had hit something, rebounded, and then hit again by going forward. Was the damage to the back of the ship? The front. It was to the front. Yeah. Okay. Because it could barely turn. I see. Lawrence Beasley said he, quote, felt a slight jar and then soon after a second one, but not sufficiently large to cause an anxiety to anyone, however nervous they may have been. However, the engine stopped immediately afterward, and my first thought was, she has lost a propeller. A lot of first and second class passengers described the collision as feeling like a jar. Yeah. The third class passengers were located in the ship's lowermost accommodations, so they felt the impact more than the first and second class passengers. 16-year-old third class passenger Laura Cribb recalled that she suddenly, quote, suddenly awoke with a slight shiver, sat bold right up in my bunk. I feel sure I sat there for a full three minutes. Suddenly the ship gave a violent jerk and the engine stopped. The engine stopping really freaked people out. Yeah, I can imagine that because it's probably a low-grade sound you don't even realize is still existing until it's gone. It's like if you were on an airplane and all of a sudden it stopped going. Yeah, but it's like a sound you kind of, it's in the background and then when it's missing, you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) Right, and even the uh, movement of the engine stopping, that caused a jolt Like a light vibration or something, yeah. Eugene Daly recalled that it was a sound like thunder that woke him up. He said that when he asked a steward what was wrong, he said it was nothing serious and to go back to sleep. We're going to take a quick break here. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. The workers in Boiler Room 6 were located closest to the point of collision. 
Moments after seeing the red warning light come on indicating the men to stop, one of the firemen, a guy named Fred Barrett, said he saw the hull plates being crushed in by the iceberg. Mm. So he was like working and yeah. there's this huge fucking indentation coming in towards him. That's scary. Yeah. Uh, he then said it was followed by a wave of water pouring in. Oof. Fred Barrett and second engineer John Hesketh started running back toward boiler room five before the closing watertight door could trap them inside. At the time of the collision, Bruce Ismay was sleeping in his first-class cabin. He awoke, thinking the ship had lost a propeller. He asked a steward, who said he didn't know what was happening, so he put a coat on over his pajamas and headed to the bridge to get some more information. When he reached the bridge, Captain Smith alerted him that they had just hit an iceberg and that he believed the damage was serious. Bruce headed back to his cabin where he met Chief Engineer Joseph Bell along the way. Bell told him that while the damage to the ship was serious, he was hopeful that the pumps would be able to get rid of the water that was flooding down below. So that was like the first priority. Like we need to get this fucking water right out of these watertight compartments so the ship doesn't Sink. start sinking. By this time, several of the ship's passengers were slipping coats and robes over their pajamas and heading out to see what the hell was going on. First-class passenger Edith Rosenbaum recalled heading out to the deck after seeing the iceberg from her window. Quote, There were no more than five passengers standing at the rail when I got there. Publisher William Stead stood frowning at the ice fragments which littered the deck. Artist Francis Millet came down the companionway from the bridge. What do they say is the trouble? Stead asked. Iceberg, Millet answered. We all turned to the great floating mountain of white with new interest. It had drifted some distance to starboard and loomed indistinct and mysterious in the velvet dark. Well, I guess it's nothing serious, Mr. Stead said. I'll go back to my cabin and read. Cheerio, all. Imagine being that chill. (laughs) I can't believe people actually said cheerio. Do people still say that? I have no idea. I imagine some idiot who's like trying to be fancy. (laughs) Like people who are like, ciao. Oh, God. Uh, The rest of us made our way forward, gathering up ice chips and balling them in our hands. Some suggested a snow fight, but it was too cold for that. I mean, some people did have like a snowball fight on the deck. I can't imagine being that like lackadaisical about it all. I think it was a lot of people just like couldn't fathom a disaster of this magnitude happening, especially on this ship. It just was like so outside the realm of possibility. It's like a car. It's like a car just sideswiped them. It was like, yeah, yeah, it's damaged, but fine. Right. Like the paint's damaged. Mm -hmm. Maybe Uh, it's a scrape. Let's have a snowball fight. Lady Duff Gordon remembered the sound of people running up onto the deck by her cabin, laughing and in a playful mood because there was ice on the deck. Yeah. So a lot of people were really amused by all the ice on the deck. Stewards around the ship were assuring passengers from each class that everything was fine and they should just go back to bed. Within 15 minutes after the collision, boiler room six was flooded with eight feet of water. (sighs) So that's the frontmost boiler room. Up near the grand staircase, first-class passengers could see Thomas Andrews rushing about as he made his way down to the engine room. He periodically stopped to assure passengers who asked that everything was going to be okay, but it was not okay. Water was flooding throughout the lower areas of the ship at an alarming rate. 
The post office on G deck was flooding. The five postal workers who were down there began grabbing sacks of mail and lugging them upstairs. Who cares? I guess, so. <laughs> I guess it was instinct. They're doing their job and they're right. like, well, we better save all this mail. Yeah. Kind of seems like not yeah. important now. Several passengers would recall seeing the postal workers with their pant legs soaked up to the knees, mm. ascending the stairs, carrying this mail. Like this post office got fucked up yeah. fast. It was about midnight when 4th Officer Joseph Boxhall arrived back on the bridge after he had inspected the flooding mailroom. He alerted Captain Smith, who then gave the order to start preparing the lifeboats. At this time, the preparing of the lifeboats was a preventative measure, as the ship had not been said to be sinking at this time. Yeah. Captain Smith had spent the last 20 minutes since the collision traveling throughout the ship, doing various inspections and talking to a variety of crew members about the situation. This is all happening in a very short time. Yeah. That like, like these crew members are not stopping. They are yeah. busy doing stuff. Um, and so is uh, Thomas Andrews and, and obviously Captain Smith. He wanted to prepare in case the worst happened. So he's like, we need to just uncover the lifeboats. Yeah. Just get them ready. Just in case. Just in case. The plan was to uncover and prepare the lifeboats as calmly and discreetly as possible so as not to arouse a panic among the ship's passengers. But second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley spotted one of the ship's officers preparing a lifeboat, and he was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Soon after, he proceeded to walk downstairs when he noticed something eerie. Quote, as I passed to go down, I looked forward again. I saw to my surprise an undoubted tilt downwards from the stern to the bows. Only a slight slope, which I don't think anyone had noticed. At any rate, they had not remarked on it. As I went downstairs, a confirmation of this tilting forward came in something unusual about the stairs. A curious sense of something out of balance and not being able to put one's feet down in the right place. Ugh. That's creepy. Very creepy. By 12.10 a.m., Thomas Andrews had been seen with Captain Smith heading back up from, the, from below deck. Andrews was overheard telling Smith that three of the watertight compartments were flooded. Smith headed back up to the bridge while Andrews stayed below for further inspections. The situation was becoming increasingly dire. At 12.15 a.m., Captain Smith gave the order to bring out the lifeboats and, like, ready them, uh, not just, like, uncover them with the canvas. He then went to the Marconi wireless room and told the operators to be prepared to send out a distress signal, but do not send it out till I give the order. Next, the order was given for passengers to put on their life jackets. Captain Smith was among the crew members approaching various passengers and instructing them to put on their life jackets. As the officers further prepared the lifeboats, Officer Lightoller recalled the cacophony of noise from the steam that was escaping from the boilers through the valves that had... Yeah. It was incredibly loud on the deck. Um, All of the... This steam from when the engine stopped and the boiler stopped was just like pouring out. pouring through these spouts. Uh, it was really un- annoying outside. He said that this prevented the crew members from hearing commands easily. They had to like do a lot of hand signals right. with each other, and it just added to the overall stress yeah. of the situation. 
Lightoller said, quote, the passengers by this time were beginning to flock up onto the boat deck with anxious faces, the appalling din only adding to their anxiety in a situation already terrifying enough in all conscience. Meanwhile, first-class passenger Dr. Harry Frauenthal was on his way back to his cabin when he ran into fellow first-class passenger Harry Widener. Frauenthal said, Quote, I informed him that I learned the boat was in serious danger, but he said it was ridiculous. This answer probably describes the mental state of nearly everyone on the boat, thinking that it was impossible for anything serious to happen to this paragon of modern ship architecture. I returned to my cabin and insisted on my wife putting a life preserver on. As the passengers gathered on the deck with varying degrees of concern, the band assembled at the first-class entrance on the promenade deck and began playing. Now, it should be noted that the band aboard the Titanic were not White Star Line employees. They were actually union musicians employed by a different company. The music they played that night wasn't like an official order. One stewardess said that the band played completely on their own volition, like it was their own idea to play, but it is probably likely that they were asked by the crew to play and they just did so out of a sense of personal duty. Yeah. Like they weren't, it wasn't an order like, oh, you, you this have is to. part of your job. Yeah. You need to play right now. They probably were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll help. Yeah. We'll help put a sense of ease and, and calm. And I think the reaction to the band playing, like they are lauded as, as heroes definitely. And I, you know, they're, they they did this purely out of the you know to help yeah. the passengers, um, but I'm pretty sure it was probably like a mixed bag of reactions to the music playing during this time. Like it possibly did lull some people, right? But like for me personally, I would think it was weird. I'd be like, stop trying to trick me. I'm scared. Yeah, this <laughs> this makes it worse. You're not fooling me. Like yeah, yeah. I wouldn't blame them, but... No, I wouldn't blame them, but for me personally, I would be creeped out by it. Mm -hmm. By this time, the grim reality had become clear to Thomas Andrews. Five of the ship's 16 watertight compartments were now flooded. The ship could stay afloat with four of them flooded, but not five. The ship's bow was being dragged down... Did I say bow? Bow. I meant bow. (laughs) So please do not email me. The ship's bow was being dragged down by the weight of the water. And as it was dragged down, more water would then spill into the compartment behind it. Right. Creating this domino effect of water. Thomas Andrews knew that this ship was going to sink. Andrews raced upstairs to the ship's bridge to confer with the captain. Several passengers recall him looking absolutely sick. When Andrews reached Captain Smith on the bridge at 12.25 a.m., he delivered the news. Smith asked him how long until the ship sank. Andrews replied, an hour or an hour and a half. The only option at this point was to evacuate the ship. The greatest problem now was the lifeboat situation. As we mentioned in episode one, there were 2,208 passengers and crew on board, and only enough room in the lifeboats for 1,178. So like half. Half. Yeah. Following their conversation with Captain Smith, uh, following their conversation, Captain Smith ran down to the Marconi wireless room to give the order to send out the distress signal. The Carpathia answered the distress signal and replied that they were turning around immediately to come aid the Titanic. But the Carpathia was 58 miles away. (gasps) So it would take them 
four hours to get there. But they're like, we're turning around. We're on it. We got you guys. Meanwhile, the Californian, which was like five miles away, had shut off the radio for the night. Now that guy regrets it. Uh, Saying shut up (laughs) to that guy? (laughs) He probably should have used a nicer tone. Uh, Yeah. Um, Also, I mean, that's, are you allowed to turn off the radio? Like, that seems weird, even if the guy was a jerk. I, Do you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't you always need the radio on, regardless I, of the Titanic? It like, seems really odd to me, too, but apparently it was okay because the captain of the Californian knew that the radio... This was like a... I guess this was a standard practice of theirs. The radio operator also had gone to sleep. I wonder, also, were there any available... Um, sirens or signals because five miles you might be able to hear something we're gonna talk okay (laughs) um this is a whole fucking thing yeah with the californian and uh we'll talk about it definitely more in okay episode four as there's a lot of fallout from this down in third class the passengers near the ship's bow had escaped their cabins which were flooding with water some of them headed up and some headed aft Several of the third-class passengers were rushing into the drier areas of the ship, carrying all their belongings with their clothes soaking wet. The overall mood among passengers was still varied. Some saw these panicked passengers and were like, what the hell? Yeah. Calm down. Ugh, third-classers. Yeah. (laughs) But but their rooms probably weren't flooding with water. Uh, No. Like, I mean, it makes sense. Like, your room starts just filling up at an alarming rate. It's a little more stressful. It's a little more stressful first class. I could see first class, though, actually thinking, look look at those robes. Yeah. All scared. (laughs) Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. During the rush to get upstairs, some passengers were injured. One third class passenger, Maggie Daly, remembered getting to the stairs before turning around, realizing that she had left something really important in her cabin. Her husband, Eugene, begged her not to go back. He's like, forget it. Yeah. We have to get at the water. We have to get out of here. But she went back anyway. And she was horrified to see that her, her cabin was now five feet underwater. What did she need to get? I didn't, it didn't specify, but apparently it was of sentimental value. Ugh, can a you imagine? Of, ugh. I would not be going back. I'm Honestly, sorry. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I mean, maybe she didn't think it was... I guess. Maybe she thought it was only two feet of water at that point. I mean, I think maybe we're all kind of trained now to be like, never go back into the fire or like whatever. And nothing is more important than your right. life kind of thing. Well, and we all know how this story is going to end. So it's like we were just screaming at people for, in like the Like, unless it's your baby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going back. <laughs> right. So the first lifeboat, which was Boat 7, was lowered into the water an hour after the collision with the iceberg. Despite Captain Smith's proactive measures to get all these boats prepared, the boats were not able to be lowered any sooner. It yeah. was kind of a clusterfuck with the lifeboats. Um, and despite how the how he would come to be portrayed in the media, Bruce Ismay was seen by many passengers aboard the ship dressed in his pajamas and overcoat, aiding women and children into lifeboats. I don't know if you remember Bruce Ismay from the 1997 movie Titanic. He's portrayed as this like as a coward, right? Was that? Is that the Victor Garber character? No, no that's, that's, he's that's Andrew. Thomas Andrews. Okay, he's Andrews. Who um, played him? Oh, I'm gosh, I forget his name. He's famous. Yeah. I mean, he's like a character, famous character right. actor. I'm sure I would remember. In his book, 
the ship of dreams, the sinking of the Titanic and the end of the Edwardian era, author Gareth Russell says of Ismay, quote, if the Titanic's legend has a two-dimensional character, it is Ismay, cast as both a vulpine villain and a serial weakling in the hysterical aftermath of the sinking. So complete was Ismay's historical evisceration that when a consultant first saw the script for what became a multi-Oscar winning cinematic romance set on the Titanic and queried the characterization of Ismay as a megalomaniacal moron, but of penis envy jokes, he could not he could not understand and shameless manipulator of the captain in the dangerous quest for more speed. He was told that there was no point in changing it because the public expects a heinous Ismay. Right. I think, um, you want a villain and he really is the best choice for that. Cause everyone else is kind of like, well, the captain's just a working man. Do you know what I mean? Like he's following orders and the other people are also following orders, but he is literally the only one who was, more invested in the um, sort of legend of the ship and like making it something. And the speed. Yeah. Uh, people so, had heard him throughout the uh, journey talking about how fast the ship could go. Well, because his salesman pitch was like, whatever, before this disaster happened, it was, you know, par for the course. I mean, it's typical of someone in that position to be bragging and selling it as the best ship. But after the fact, it just looks really bad. Right. Like, yeah. Um. So... The reality is that Ismay was more of a complex human being than he was portrayed, but obviously that's <laughs> not to say that he didn't um, receive a storm of criticism after the sinking of the ship. He was accused of selfishly escaping the ship before more women and children could board the lifeboats. Right. According to Ismay, he got into one of the collapsible lifeboats, which was the last of the boats to be lowered over the starboard side. Usually it's the way he's portrayed is like he got in one a lifeboat pretty immediately, but he actually did spend right. a longer time on the ship. Whether or not he should have gone down with the ship is like, that's your own opinion or it's debatable. Right. Um, but yeah, like people did definitely want a person to villainize afterwards. Yes. Uh, this is the, It's easier to put it all on one person than all the series of events that happened. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's the chair of the White Star line. Yeah. As we said before, he had been very braggadocious yeah. about uh, this ship and its power. According to Ismay, um, he later claimed that there were no women and children around when the boat was being loaded. This is a statement that some passengers would refute. Regardless of the help that Ismay did offer to the passengers aboard the ship, he couldn't escape being labeled a coward and a piece of shit for taking away a seat from a woman or a child or a working class passenger. Not only that, but as White Star Line's chairman, he was primed to be a villain. It was a stain that would follow him the rest of his life. I mean, that is an interesting thing. I I am sure there were situations where there weren't people because we know that some of those ships I mean those lifeboats were not full yes so it's like do you wait for someone to come or do you just take the seat I mean like and there were a variety of reasons the lifeboats weren't full most notably a lot of passengers did not want to get on the lifeboats because they felt that it's safer to stay it's safer to stay on the ship and that is a rinky dink looking little wooden boat why would I get on that in the middle of the freezing Atlantic right. Ocean? I'm staying on the ship and waiting for help. Yes. Or or denial, the ship isn't sinking. Yes. Um, so, yeah. 
After Boat 7 was loaded, Benjamin Guggenheim and his valet, Victor Giglio, were seen wearing fancy clothes, probably tuxedos. Earlier, the two men had been woken up by first-class steward Henry Etches telling the two men that they needed to get dressed and head up to the deck. He helped them put on their life jackets and put a big sweater on Miss, on Benjamin. By this time, the men had taken off their, jack, their life jackets and were dressed to hit the town. Like, they arrive on the deck like... Where's the party? <laughs> yeah, like, they're like, look at my drip. Like, they're, they look good. Why? Well, that's exactly <laughs> what Stuart Etches said when he saw the two men. He's like, I just help you guys put on life jackets and big sweaters. Yeah. Why the fuck are you dressed like you're going to go uh, score puss on the town? Yeah. So Guggenheim replied, we've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. He then asked that Etches relay a message to his wife who was in New York. Quote, if anything should happen to me, tell my wife in New York that I've done my best doing my duty. Guggenheim then lit a cigar and proceeded to assist women and children getting into the lifeboats. Okay. I don't know how well he did that while smoking a cigar. Yeah. Or come on, kid. Come on. He, probably, he, probably <laughs> he got the thing hanging in his thing. He probably ashed on a baby. There's like these long ashes and it just falls on a little third class baby. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I did my duty. I love the idea of a third-class baby. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, your baby is third-class. They're not around. They're not allowed into the Turkish bathroom. (laughs) Please get them out of the the smoking lounge. (laughs) Both Guggenheim and his valet died on the ship that night, and they looked good doing it. I feel bad for the valet because you know he just had to go... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with things his boss wanted to play hero. Oh, totally. Like what was, he's probably like, I lived a good life. Yeah, yeah. And the valley's like, I don't think I've lived as much as I want to live. Yeah. Sir. Sir. <laughs> Do we have to? Though the stewards did their best to keep everything orderly when loading the passengers into the lifeboats, moments of unruliness were inevitable. When the second lifeboat, boat five, was being lowered, Isaac and Henry Frauenthal panicked and jumped into the boat. Following their jump, first-class passenger Elmer Taylor dove in. Elmer was a very large man. Oh, God. So he did this cannonball into the boat that's, like, being lowered. What an idiot. Because he made a split decision, like, oh, I better get in that boat. (laughs) Cannonball. (laughs) Cannonball. (laughs) Fucking Elmer. His fucking dive had him landing on a passenger named Annie Stengel, who dislocated some of her (gasps) ribs. Jesus. She was like, you big fucking oaf. And then they have to be in the boat together. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) That's awful for hours. What the fuck? The officers were really pissed off at these guys. And somebody was like, throw that man off the boat. I don't know Uh. who said that, but somebody said that. (laughs) (laughs) By this time, the officers in charge of the lifeboat were like, exasperated because I mean it they're just trying to get people safely into these life I can't even imagine what that situation is like it's a complete shit show and especially lifeboat five and this is only the second boat that's being loaded the the officers are discussing like we better get some guns here to, to keep like that was the level it was at they're like we need guns in case we need to keep unruly passengers in line yeah um Lifeboat 5 descended into the water with 35 occupants, like we mentioned uh, in the past two weeks. These lifeboats could carry 65. Why did it lower before 65? Was there a reason? Because no one else wanted to get in. So it was literally... But So they wouldn't just hold off until more people came? 
I guess not. Yeah. The problem was there was very minimal training done with the lifeboat procedures in I general. See. And I think this was a situation. And they had to get them in the water. They had to get them in yeah. fast because the ship was uh, sinking. At, and at some point you wouldn't be able to lower them probably if the ship was too upright. Yeah. So, um, I mean, everything was just like, it was kind of a nightmare. While being lowered, Lifeboat 5 was dipping to one side because it's like on those pulleys. Yeah. And it and like one side was like heavier than the other. Right. And the passengers were like, get more people in here. Like even it out, you right. know. And um, the passengers were like about to be thrown out of the boat because it was like diagonal going down. So when Elmer, he, did he jump into 5? Yes. But if it wasn't full, why wouldn't they have let him in anyway? They had just already started lowering it when he jumped yes. in. Okay. Yes. So he would have been able to go in if it had had not been lowered. Yeah. I think like a lot of people, he was like, should I get in the boat or stay on the ship? Yeah. Should I get in or stay on the and ship? And then he was like, cowabunga. <laughs> and that is a direct quote from Elmer. He, that was the first cowabunga of all time. He's the original Bart Simpson. <laughs> when they reached the water, Lifeboat 5 passenger Helen Ostby recalled... By the time we were lowered to the water, the Titanic had begun very noticeably to go down by the head. The stars were out and it was pitch dark. The sea was calm. As we pulled away, you could see the lights of the ship and the lighted forward portholes gradually disappearing. At around 12.55 a.m., after doing Morse code signals with a lamp to no avail... They were trying to signal the Californian with the Morse code lamp now. Right. Um, Distress rockets were fired from the Titanic to alert the nearby ship. Captain Lord, who was the Californian's captain, was awoken and alerted to the rockets being fired. But Captain Lord figured that these rockets must be some sort of company signal. They're like, oh, they're communicating with another ship. Yeah, you. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I... I, I'm, I'm, we're going to talk about the hearings next week, but I tried so hard to understand. I read s- several different places. Like, what did he fucking think was happening? Well, wouldn't you? It's like, it's like so, so, no one has ever wanted to go back to bed more <laughs> than the captain of the Californian. I like, honestly think that had to be it. I think he was woken up and he was in that sleep where you're like, just turn it off. Do you know like when you wake up and you hear a noise and you're like, it could be a murderer, but it's probably just a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to go back to sleep so bad? Yes. You don't even check. Like, yes. yeah. or, or a cat breaks something in the other room and you're like, I'll get it tomorrow. Yeah. Like you just, I think he was just like, what? Calm down. Just quiet. Yeah. And he went back You're to- looking for any reason not to get up. <laughs> Uh, out of bed. I think that's what happened. Because you wouldn't you at least be like, well, maybe we should check the radio. No. Yeah. Captain Lord, uh, I don't know if one of the officers, I think one of the officers was like, should we turn the radio on? He's like, no, just don't wake him up. I mean, what's the point of being the captain if you don't get other people to do your dirty work? Wake them up. He saw that radio operator sleeping like a baby in his cabin. He's yeah. like, he looks so peaceful. Yeah. Don't wake him up. Don't wake him They're up. Having I, a, I couldn't. It's I, a party. It, break, it breaks my heart. They're having, it's just fireworks. <laughs> yeah. It breaks my heart. breaks my heart. Please. Just wake up that sleeping He's baby. Been, he had a rough week. Okay. <laughs> the, the fucking Titanic told him to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> that was his last straw. So uh, he did not wake up the wireless operator to fur- or, or further investigate the situation. He was like, ah, the, what, what, how bad could those rockets be? Uh, well, what, else, what else could they 
Who cares? Yeah. So this would obviously be a big scandal later. Like yeah. you guys literally sat five miles away from the Titanic while it was sinking. And how long would that have taken them to get over? Like 10 minutes? <laughs> Probably <laughs> like, not 10 minutes, but definitely less than four hours. Way less than four hours. Yeah. Like I maybe within the hour they yeah. could have been over there and saved like everyone yeah, or a lot more people than who were saved on the Titanic. So yeah, we will talk more about the Californian in next week's episode. We're going to talk obviously about the rest of the sinking of the Titanic. Titanic. Did I say that? (laughs) Titanic. It's the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and more. Oh, is this the end? Yeah, this is the end. (laughs) We added a riff onto the end, so I didn't realize. I know, I realized. I'm like, oh, that's all my notes for today. (laughs) Um, Damn, I'm mad at this California guy. It's pretty wild, huh? Look, it's like I've done a lot of jerky things in my life (laughs) that could have led to some bad shit, possibly. (laughs) And luckily it never happened. So I get where he's coming from. But I feel like if I was in a serious position, I would not be on my bullshit as much. (laughs) Like, I wonder if in the hearing, the radio operator was like, he said, shut up. He told me to shut up. I shut up. Yeah. Yeah, in the hearing. (laughs) Well, he told me to shut up and I was just following orders. How would you feel uh, if yeah. somebody told you to shut up, shut up twice? Yeah. So I turned the radio off and went fucking to sleep. I took an ambient. <laughs> and I went to sleep. Yeah. Sorry. Guess you don't need my help. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, your big fancy ship. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was unsinkable. Guess not. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean... It's so many fuck ups, it seems. It's the thing is it's the Titanic is no one single person's fault or one single decision's fault. There's a lot of factors here of why this ship sank and how it sank. It, it, it's a lot. It's a lot of like a, a perfect storm yeah. situation. It seems that way. Uh we're also we'll touch on uh a coal fire that was burning that may have weakened the ship's hull. Oh. I mean, I'm t- when I'm telling you there's a lot of factors, I mean it. Yeah. Like... Even beyond just the negligence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be next week. We're going to record our after show now that is available on Patreon. We record a separate show after our main show every week. Shit in the shit. Just talking. About whatever. We just talk about whatever we want. Yeah. Uh, okay. Bye. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.